This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited today to be speaking with Richard Grossman and Demetrius Warwick, partners at one of the top activist defense firms in the U.S., Skadden Arps. They're focused on activist investing, proxy contests, M&A, corporate governance. Richard and Demetrius have advised on a wide variety of activist-targeted companies, really big, impressive size companies, FedEx, Aimco, Catalent, Anaplan, Argo Group, Semtech versus some of the most aggressive and well-known activist investors, kind of a who's who of top activists, Elliott Management, Starboard Value, Landon Buildings, D. Shaw, and others. And I would just note that I was noticing on Friday that Landon Buildings cut their stake to below 5% of AIMCO. So I'm wondering if they're cutting and running there. But anyways, it's a pleasure to have you guys. Thank you, Richard and Demetrius, for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. Great to be here. Thanks for having us on, Ron. Okay, so let's get into the world of activism. I wanted to talk to you about an area of governance that I've been particularly interested in lately. I just did a piece using our BoardX data on the size of boards and found a lot of very big kind of unwieldy boards, a lot of very small, like five-member boards that raise questions, raise red flags. But what I also noticed that was I was not expecting when I started the research was that a lot of the biggest boards involve settlements where... There's an agreement to expand the size of the board, add new directors, and they're, you know, those boards are become, are some of the biggest boards out there right now. But there's an agreement to drop the size of the board back to kind of pre-settlement levels at some future date, not too far away. And actually a lot of them are basically the 2024 annual meeting. So at the 2024 annual meeting, it drops down. So I mean, let's say they add expanded the board by, let's say two, three, four, then two, three, four incumbent directors. I guess prior to the settlement will depart the 2024 annual meeting. We saw this at Shake Shack, United Natural Foods. So Richard Demetrius, let me know what you think about this. Like this is a kind of a two part question. Why are we seeing these kind of settlements where they expand the board and then shrink later? And then second, how big do you think a board should be? Sure, Ron. Look, companies and activists agree to structure their settlements this way for a number of reasons. A lot of times the activist doesn't have a strong view as to which incumbent directors should be going off the board, allowing the target to decide for itself and really defer consideration of that topic until the annual meeting comes up. Also, there's a technical reason why sometimes companies do this. Having a director not stand for election at the next annual meeting avoids an 8K calling out which incumbent directors are stepping off a board. If they were to resign, that would trigger an 8K. Also, it may be to have incumbents remain in place can also serve as a useful transition. Sometimes they're the more long-tenured directors who end up coming off the board, allowing them to transition off while you're onboarding. The new directors can be beneficial to the overall board process and the onboarding process for the new directors. In terms of what's, in terms of board sizes, there's no one size fits all for all, all boards. Companies, you know, need to strike a balance between having a number of directors that reflects the breadth of experience and background and have to have enough directors to staff the various boards committees on the one hand. On the other hand, if it's too small, you know, you don't have enough to make robust discussion and decision making. Smaller companies tend to have smaller boards, 
the proxy advisory service, I think Glass Lewis has a very broad range saying, you know, ideal size is between five and 20. I think if you look at the S&P 500 companies, the average is somewhere around 11 directors. And then, you know, my view is somewhere in the range of 10 to 12, most boards feel is an appropriate size for the size of a board. And, but, you know, it's, uh, I found a lot of companies with five directors and I wonder, you know, how do you make all the different committee subcommittees? Basically, the same people are all, on all the subcommittees. If you have five, five, we know one of them is CEO, presumably, on a five-person board. No, no, that's right. It's very hard to populate the committees. And a lot of work these days, whether it's the comp committee or the audit committee, is done at the committee level. You only have three or four independent directors, and those committees need to be populated with independent directors. It gets very difficult to do the committees. That's why I said, and it's really only probably the smaller companies that tend to have only five or six directors. And I think that been in situations where it's almost, you know, companies looking for more directors so they can do the committee work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely very interesting. Okay. Another subject that is near and dear to our heart here at The Deal, activist investing as it pertains to M&A. And it seems that M&A remains one of the top strategies for activist investors launching campaigns, despite a cooling deal environment. Curious if we're seeing a shift in the kinds of M&A related campaigns that are out there. And, you know, I categorize M&A campaigns in a few different buckets. One is the sell the company. Other is divest or spin off an asset. Often that it's like, yeah, we'd like you to sell the asset. And if that doesn't work, then spin it off. Or uh, trying to challenge an existing deal, either by pushing the buyer to pay more, or in many cases, like an article, a situation I wrote about yesterday, just to block the deal outright. Just, you know, we don't want this deal to happen. I feel like I've seen a lot of those where the activists are just trying to stop deals. But I don't know. What are you guys seeing out there? Take that one, Ron. So look, just to set the table a little bit, you alluded to it, but to put some numbers around it. Globally, you're looking at about 1.8 billion volume through August of this year, which is the slowest M&A period since 2013. So we're talking about a 10-year period of boom, and we are certainly slowed down from that period. In the U.S., we're at around the slowest M&A volume range since, I believe, early on in the pandemic. So how does that impact activism? Well, if you look at the numbers for activism in general, it's remained relatively flat. However, the percentage or portion of activist thesis that relate to M&A has remained in the same range that we normally see it, which is normally in the you know 45 to 50 range. I think mm-hmm. so far this year, it's around 46% for, for first half of the year, mm-hmm. which suggests to us that, look, we've had a slowdown in overall M&A, but it's still a core thesis, which points to exactly what you're saying, Ron, is that there's been a bit of a shift in the approach. And it's gone from in the past, it's probably been primarily pushing companies to actually go forward and seek activism and or putting in a bid or a push against a potential deal or bump arbitrage. Mm-hmm. To now, I think we're seeing probably a larger portion of the pie focused on divested or transactions or, mm-hmm. or spinoffs or, or something where the company is being pushed to look at businesses or assets that are underperforming and make determination as to find a way to get rid of those businesses in order to put the overall company into a, a better value position. Yeah, no, it's true. I have seen a lot of kind of campaigns where they're trying to get companies, you know, mini conglomerates or companies with disparate units, divest the unit. And 
Richard, you had an interesting point when I chatted with you about this topic before about how companies often seek to divest units that have lower earnings multiples. Why is that? Well, that's right. Look, first of all, the divestiture, they view it as a way to unlock value. First, you can use the divestiture for buybacks, but perhaps more importantly, if the divested unit is a lower growth business at a lower multiple, the view is that the remaining business will then trade at a higher multiple unlocking value Ah. for the shareholders. So the remaining company, you know, the higher growth, high value business is really being hidden by the lower growth businesses that traded a lower multiple. So either spinning it off or divesting it. Obviously, if you spin it off, you don't have cash proceeds. But if you sell it, you can also get a double whammy because you can use the proceeds for potential share buybacks. And then also you have the remaining business trade at a higher multiple, hopefully generating a quicker return for the activist and other shareholders in that scenario. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I'm going to have to take a closer look at the, uh, you know, I often hear from activists, you know, this is a specific unit we want to see sold. Sometimes they don't discuss which units they want to see sold publicly, but the, I'm going to have to check out, you know, what are the earnings multiples of those units? Sometimes it's difficult to, you know, they don't, they don't break that out in earnings. So it might be difficult to find out, but that's, that sounds like it could be an interesting an article to look at how companies are divesting divisions with lower earnings multiples if they can. There was one case, though, I did find where they, the activists specifically, I was discussing with the activists and, and the company decided to sell the higher earnings multiple company and the activist was not happy about that. But anyways, putting that aside, I wanted to get your thoughts about the types of activist investors we are seeing out there launching campaigns. Seems like there's a lot of activists starting firms, activists that are leaving kind of the uh, top tier activist funds. So, a number of uh, activists have left Carl Icahn and started their own investment firms. Elliott Management on different continents, I've seen activists leave Elliott and launch their own firms. Starboard Value, the top activists, uh, portfolio managers of these firms have left. Actually, I wrote about yesterday an analyst at a top high level kind of California based activist fund, Legion Partners, this guy, Sagar Gupta. Just left to build out the activism strategy of a Toronto-based investment fund called Anson Funds, which has dabbled in activists. So we're seeing a lot of these kind of baby activists or whatever you want to call them. How should we consider these startup activist funds? And I guess, what other kinds of investors should we think of as activists? Well, you're right, Ron. We've continued to see a lot of new activist funds popping up, You know, whether it's Politan, Vision One, Irenic. And these folks generally hail from more established outfits. You know, I coined the phrase several years ago, call him son of activists. I think Keith <laughs> Meister was one of the, Keith Meister at Corvax right. was one of the first who came out of there. A lot of actually, as you point out, that have come out of Icon Shop. Mm. They've succeeded in attracting capital. They generally are smaller funds, especially at the start. So we expect them to deploy that capital more selectively at target companies, at least early on. Companies need to be particularly wary if one of these activists shows up because they may not have the track record that, you know, what their tactics are as some of the more established funds. You can rely on maybe what they did while they were at Starboard or Elliott, but I will tell you, it's not always the case. Sometimes I've seen them be more aggressive. Sometimes I've seen them take a a more constructive attitude with their own funds. So you got to approach it into your stock. 
And, and look, I think that trend uh, will continue. This is an asset class that has continued to grow. And as these folks who felt maybe they weren't getting appropriately compensated at the larger fund, feel they can strike out on their own. And if they're able to raise capital, then you have the makers of a, of a new just, fund. Just to push you on that for a, just a little bit, I always wonder whether at these large activist funds that have so many assets under management, there's kind of pressure for the portfolio manager to identify ideas that are at larger companies because they need to put more money to work. Whereas at these smaller funds, they obviously have less capital. It's kind of a startup. They'll be targeting smaller market cap companies. It's a broader range of companies. It's easier for them to find targets. Is it, there any validity? Yeah, and they, there is some truth to that. And they, and they tend to focus on on smaller and mid-cap companies. You know, a place like Elliott has to put a certain amount of capital to work for it to make it worth their while to take an investment. But if somebody ends up with only a couple hundred million dollar fund, they can look at smaller cap companies and don't need to put as much capital to work to make a significant investment at a smaller market cap company. What about non-traditional activists? In my view, there's kind of a broad range of what I would consider an activist. Obviously, there's the activist hedge funds, which we've been talking about up until now. But I feel like at least three or four times a year, I write about a situation where there's an ex-CEO or the founder of the company is not happy way the company is run after he left and launched a director contest to get uh, people in. Then you also have, just the other day, I got a, uh, I get emailed notes from Neuberger Berman explaining their votes on controversial mergers, you know, why they oppose this one Stratasys desktop metal merger, a very a kind of a controversial 3D printing deal that has a lot of moving parts, different unsolicited bidders and things like that going on there. And they put me on this list and I get an email and they send it to me before the vote on the deal. I know that some of the big index funds or some of these guys put out these notes after the votes, kind of explaining in retrospect what their their vote is. But sometimes I get notes from these kind of what I consider to be active investors, not activists, and they're ahead of the vote. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, non-traditional activists. Yeah, Ron, it's a good point. And Rich mentioned this earlier that thinking of activism as its own asset class, and it certainly has developed that way over time. And there are the kind of known individuals and and funds that operate in that space. I've begun over time to think about it a little bit more broadly. There's an asset class, but it's also kind of like a tool and toolkit. Any investor that's interested in utilizing activist-like tactics in order to obtain an objective you kind of hit the nail on the head with kind of some of the universes we've seen. We've absolutely seen an uptick in, in what we'll say are kind of first-time activists or, or funds that generally hadn't been known for engaging in activism, but have been involved in situations and had investments where they became more aggressive and they were willing to approach management team and the board with what they thought were the best approach. Or interesting, I think, are these individual stockholders that have shown up in some instances and have also been able to take on companies and in some cases are willing to even launch public campaigns adverse to the company's direction. Another universe that has been quite interesting, and we've seen this play out in a few circumstances, are when insiders step up and start to take activist actions. And this is, you know, everyone, former or current directors and or members of of management. And there's some very high profile situations where we saw that play out from everything from withhold campaigns 
in situations where you may have a member of management with a substantial position in the company and they're utilized that substantial position in the company to influence who's going to ultimately be able to lead the company. So certainly investors are showing a willingness to be, let's call it creative in their approach to trying to persuade boards to take action that they would like them to take. I will note, however, just to say it, because I know it's out there and it's it's certainly something that you've talked about with folks, Ron, is that we haven't necessarily seen an uptick in kind of first time activists that we would attribute specifically to universal proxy. That's Mm. been a trend that's been going on for a little while now. So I, I don't think that that's just because of the UPR rules. Yeah, no, that's interesting that you bring in the universal proxy card because there was kind of an expectation that we would see these kind of single issue, let's say environmental theme contests take place at some companies because the, you know, I guess the universal proxy card should make it less expensive, presumably to launch a, a campaign. Obviously to be successful, you really need the the bankers, the lawyers like you guys, the proxy solicitors to succeed. Maybe that's why we haven't seen more of these single issue ESG activist type uh, contests, even though Universal Card has made it less expensive overall. You don't have to solicit that many people. Yeah, you're right, Ron. You really did make it a little less expensive. But on the other hand, you still need to prepare your proxy material. You still need to get out and talk to the shareholders and Exxon, when engine number one did it, everybody predicted there were going to be the floodgates of these single issue fights, but they just really right. haven't materialized. And it's a wait and see whether these single issue contests do materialize or not. Okay. So there's one other subject I want to dig into that you guys wrote a fascinating report on short seller activism. And we've seen a number of high profile targets getting hit with short seller campaigns. From Carl Icahn and his IEP for holding company to Nikola and its founder, Trevor Milton. And all over the world, we're seeing these short seller activism campaigns that are having some impact. So I guess I wanted to get your sense of how is short seller activism different from traditionally long activism? And I suspected a short seller never wants to do a settlement to get directors on the board, right? I mean, right. their goal is not to improve the company. They're presumably exposing some sort of problem with the company to drive the share price down. 100%, Ryan. And you kind of hit on it. There's three key differing factors that I think make engagement with short sellers substantially different than with a long activist. One, their objectives are completely different, right? Ultimately, their goal is to identify an issue that is existing in the business that will impair value. And by capitalizing on that impairment in value, that's how they ultimately are able to capitalize on their short position. Their perception of hair role is almost more like an investigator. They put out these in-depth research reports that are keenly focused on unearthing material that identify that a company is actually overvalued. A lot of times when you're thinking about it from a long activist perspective, it's actually quite the opposite. Your, your approach is more so to focus on here are opportunities where we can increase the value of the company. And then another key component is just how they engage. In general, their focus is to deliver their report to the public market without notice, right? Without notice to the company or anybody really. Without notice to the company. They want to get it to the market. They want to get it to the investor community's hands. 
and they want people to react to it. And they don't really benefit themselves by having engagement with the business. So from our perspective and companies considering engagement with short activists, we certainly think that your time is much better spent by attempting to sway the broader investment community that the issues raised by a short activist are not actually issues with the business rather than trying to convince the short activists that their positions are incorrect. Interesting. So yeah, one thing I wonder is, should you engage with regulators when you're facing an activist? It seems like that was a strategy that Nicholas founder Trevor Milton tried when he was attacked by a short seller that backfired, that didn't work for him. And something, Richard, you had brought up also when I chatted before, should an activist sue the short seller? Right. So look, let's start with litigation. With respect to litigation, we certainly understand the sentiment that when faced with a short attack, I think probably the knee-jerk reaction for most parties under threat is you want to expose that what they're saying is fraudulent or is manipulative, defaming, unlawful practices, whatever issue you'd identify in that particular situation. But it's important to just be wary that there's one substantial time, cost, and uncertainty involved with attempting to litigate these situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And given the evidentiary burden, the likelihood of success is somewhat limited historically. It's also important to consider that there's potentially an intense discovery process that could be undergone, which Mm -hmm. could also potentially unveil sensitive information about the company that could create additional issues. And then on top of that, litigating a situation may kind of pour gasoline on a fire and turn an activist situation that isn't necessarily gaining momentum into one that's getting more attention publicly. I think from a regulatory intervention perspective, similar thoughts. Mm -hmm. If you're seeking, for example, relief from the SEC, you may end up leading to further scrutiny from the SEC or other regulatory bodies as Mm -hmm. they investigate whether or not the claims made by the short seller is actually true. Now, let me just say that it may actually be appropriate in a situation for the board to determine that, look, litigation is appropriate bringing this to the attention of regulators is appropriate. Given the particular situation, you have to think about what your fiduciary duties dictate in those particular situations. I think our point is more so that it probably shouldn't be your first line of defense. Your first line of defense is absolutely going to be to be prepared for short attacks. And by that, I mean, having an outside look in to understand where your vulnerabilities are. Mm -hmm. And then when faced with an attack, being in position and being prepared to respond efficiently and effectively so that you're able to address any issues and reinstitute comfort into the market and into the investor community. Demetrius, I just wanted to kind of dig a little bit deeper to one of the points you're just making. There. So how do you monitor a short position? I mean, can you identify that, uh, you know, a well-known short seller activist? Because there are specific activists that's, that all they do is write these papers and launch short selling campaigns. Is there a way to identified that a short sale is accumulating? There's no 13F or 13D type disclosure regime for short sellers, at least not yet. No, none yet. And I'm sure there are a bunch of people that would be in support of one. You can't individually monitor you know, a specific short activist. What you can do is you can monitor your short interest and have an understanding of the quantity of a company's shares that investors have sold short. 
that haven't yet covered. And then you pair that short interest to your actual market float. And that will just give you an idea if you're monitoring it consistently as to whether there's swells in short interest or particular trends swaying one way or the other. It's a little bit more art than than science. So it's a process more in a practice of kind of understanding what's happening in your stock. And that could maybe be an alarm as to something going on. But at the end of the day, I think your real sense of preparation for it is just going to have an understanding and be prepared to defend against a short attack if wind shows up. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. As a reporter, I would love to have some sort of disclosure because, you know, we hear from these short seller activists that they have this large short position or this, you know, and so how do we verify that? <laughs> That's their position. It could be changing every day. We don't know. So it definitely very, it's similar to the, the derivatives disclosure when you have like a very large, like Elliott management claims to be the second largest investor of a company, uh, which would mean that they'd have 10% of shares, but they never file a, a Schedule 13D, which means it's all in derivatives. And the SEC is working on a derivatives disclosure, cash flow equity swaps kind of disclosure regime. So it'll be interesting to see if they adopt that. But we are out of time. This has been the Activist Investments Day podcast with Ron Oral, And I've been talking to Richard Grossman and Demetrius Warwick of Skadden. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. This was amazing.